Hey, what's going on, champs? I'm Erin Deliosa. Welcome to an Immigrant's Life podcast, my podcast about immigrants and immigration and everything in between. Thank you for listening and downloading the show, and thank you for supporting my dad. Welcome back, Immigrant Nation. Another week, another new episode. As always, every week, I will never get tired of expressing my gratitude to you all. Your support is much, much appreciated. Speaking of support, if you haven't given us a five-star rating on Spotify or iTunes, please go on ahead as it will allow us to be featured on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and we will be able to reach more listeners. Also, if you want to reach out, please check my social media accounts at An Immigrant's Life. You can also email me at animmigrantslife at yahoo.com. If you want to come on the podcast or if you know someone that wants to be on the guest on the podcast, that's the best way to get in touch avec moi. You like that? A little bit of French there? Before we talk about the episode, I want to say that I still can't believe that this guest agreed to come on the podcast despite his busy job at NASA. That's right. You heard it right. Our guest this week works for NASA I still can't believe it, and I'm so honored to have him on. His story is the quintessential example of following your dreams and making it happen. I think I've said enough. So, without further ado, let's get into the show. Isa, dalawa, tatlo. Today's guest is not just intelligent because he's the engineering operation mechanism lead at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, but he's also as cool as Benicio del Toro. Everyone, please welcome Elio Morillo. Hey, <laughs> being, uh, uh, you know, put on the same platform or pedestal as, as my compatriota, that's really cool. I appreciate the Benicio del Toro. <laughs> that's awesome. Uh, thanks so much for having me. I'm really excited to share my story on this platform and, and, and you know, contribute in any way that I can. Thank you for having me. This is a great podcast. Oh, it's a great honor. And thank you for coming. And I really do appreciate it. Also, before we go on, why don't you tell the immigrant nation where they can reach you? Yeah, sure. I, uh, I'm right now I'm more active on Instagram than anywhere else. Feel free to follow my page, The Space Mechanic, a uh, brand I've been building now for a few years. And feel free if you want to connect professionally also. I'm open to that on LinkedIn. Uh, happy to share and have conversations one-on-one with folks. I, I'm, I'm very passionate about outreach and, and mentorship with students. I know how important that is for, for, for people that are exploring engineering careers, especially people that are underrepresented in engineering. So I'm happy to share my insights, my experiences, and and help people out in any way that I can. So feel free to reach out. Very mm, open there. Awesome. Yeah, I, I love what when you do this thing. Like I like I said, I've been watching videos of you on YouTube, and my favorite one is the one when you did a talk in front of kids. I forgot which one is it. What's the name of it? But it's like you're talking to the to the kids about the rover and about Mars. And they're like noisy and talking. I'm like, man, this guy is patient. I'll be losing my shit. <laughs> I, I take that from my mom. My mom was a teacher, you know, very, hmm. very much retired. Uh, she taught little kids and I used to go with her to, to, 
to, to her classroom. So I know it requires a lot of patience, but also very being very mindful about how to keep that audience engaged. Mm-hmm. I think there's there's a, definitely a lot to learn if you present and talk to kids because all that engagement and it, it's a very different world than if you're just talking to adults. So it's way harder to talk to kids than mm-hmm. it is with adults. And it's always super fun keeping the kids motivated. And I know how impactful talking to them can be, especially about the stuff I do. Um, I want them to be in my shoes in a future, you know? So that's what I hope to to do every time I get on stage. Mm. So uh, I appreciate I appreciate that uh, the insight that you saw one of those videos. I've done a lot that aren't on YouTube. Uh, mm. You know, I can't always post about all the talks I do in schools uh, just because it's so many sometimes, but I mm. love it. I absolutely love it. You find it hard to talk to kids. I like talking to the kids. Yeah, but by, by what I mean with that is talking about technically complex mm, subjects okay and watering it down in a way that's not patronizing i i'm very con- very very conscious of that um and that's a very very difficult thing to do mm-hmm. um because i want to meet at their level mm-hmm. and i want them to engage with it so it, it's a very it's a difficult thing to do especially because i'm trained in english and when mm. i do it in spanish mm. i it's almost like i'm learning the entire subject Uh, from scratch because I have to go and, you know, my Spanish, I'm fluent, but when I'm talking about technical Spanish, I have to go and actually properly educate myself. Uh, and that's a very difficult thing to do, yeah. especially when you're watering it down. Yeah, I, I understand. I used to coach young kids and mm-hmm. yeah, I love that you say that, you know, you have to like go to their level and make sure that you're not making them feel that you're better than them, but mm-hmm. also make them know that you know some stuff. And, and sometimes these kids know more than I do. Mm. Like they will completely just regurgitate whatever encyclopedia already lives in their head. And I've been blown away by some students when I go out there and the kids are just telling me everything they know. For example, about Mars. I'll never forget this one kid recently, this past February, I was in New York City at a museum there. This kid just told me everything you need to know about Mars that we know. And I, and I looked at her, his mom and I'm like, I can hire him right now to put him right here next to me. Like, do, do you understand that, mom? Like, that's awesome. Whatever you're doing, keep doing it. Mm-hmm. Um, love to do that. <laughs> that's beautiful. Yeah. I know you were originally from Ecuador. Yep. Then you moved to New York City. Why did you move to New York City? Uh, great question. I think uh, uh, I had the privilege of already having some family there that had lived there for a few years. Uh, some of which had moved there since before I was even born. Uh, And by the time my mom decided to move in the late 90s, Ecuador was in in a lot of turmoil. Uh, There was a a lot of protests. And right now, actually, as we speak, there's an enormous uh, conflict going on between the indigenous population, or it's mostly it's the working class being led by the indigenous population, which is fascinating because there's all kinds of issues underlying there. We, that's a whole conversation. Mm. But uh, something very similar was happening in the late 90s. And uh, it, 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 the future of the country was uncertain. And my mom saw, you know, my so a lot of my family was already living in New York. We were put on the green card lottery. And we uh, had the fortune of being selected. And, and we came over here with a green card. And I've navigated that process ever since then. Mm. Um, My mom was also in a very difficult relationship with my dad, and she had to get out of that. 
Um, so, so, you know, between those two things, she saw a better future for me, very selfless. Um, she left a lot of things behind to make sure that I was okay. Mm. Um, you know, she took the, the blows for me. She protected me a lot throughout our life. Uh, Physically. I, I mean, maybe for all I know, mm. uh, maybe, I don't know, but, uh, she did protect me from a lot of the, the, the conflict in many ways just throughout my life. And it's something I'm always very grateful for. And she sacrificed a lot for me to be where I am today. Mm. Um, you know, and I appreciate all of it all the time. So I definitely give my mom credit for, for being as strong as she is. And, and I've learned a lot from her because of it. Shout out to mom. Yes. Shout out to mom. Immigrant mm. moms, man. <laughs> <laughs> they don't stop. <laughs> They're the best. They, they challenge you. They push you hard. But then they're always there to protect you and help you. Hey, and my mom is like a foot shorter than I am. Mm -hmm. And she still won't mind giving me a smack across the head mm -hmm. when I need to. She will burn <laughs> the world for you. <laughs> yes, yeah, she keeps me in check to this day. <laughs> that's funny, that's funny. So you got beat a lot when you were younger? I wouldn't say I got beat, but, you know, for... Uh, uh, I got I got hit a few times. I, I probably deserved it. I was a smart ass. I really was. I still am. Um, but uh, I, I grew up with a lot of older people, which is why I think uh, I was always just such a smart ass and snarky and just always mm. had a response to people. That was never like held back. And to this day, I think that's a strength I have is that I'm quick. Uh, that now translates to speaking up to injustices, right? Like things I don't necessarily agree with i'm very quick to speak up against and i think mm. that's been the case since i was little that got me in trouble that got me in trouble for sure for sure i'm sure <laughs> even in school right i'm pretty sure yeah yeah it's yeah. so hard because i do have kids and one of my kids he is like that he like he there's if there's something that is there's an injustice he will speak up and that's and, great and i think um hopefully you talk to them about it yeah i do and i tell him like yo i love that you're like that never change speak up but be respectful exactly i think you that's know. powerful yeah i try to like push them i don't want to be like the dad that like hey you have to be this you have to be that yeah. but uh, if they get into a um, you know a topic then we'll talk about it you know that's great that's great i think that's very powerful so when you moved to new york how old were you i think i was just four yeah four okay. or five something like that and then i saw that you moved to pr puerto rico That's correct. So I think I, I, I was in New York City for what was kindergarten and first grade. So I navigated what at the time was, you know, ESL, right? English as a second language. Mm -hmm. um, I picked it up pretty quickly. I mean, you know, at that age, you're just a little sponge. So by the time it just took maybe a few months and I was completely comfortable in, in speaking and even reading English at the same level uh, as, as my classmates. I remember it got to the point where I was bored in ESL mm. and I would complain because I would be like, Hey, I've already done this. Like, why are you having me do this same exercise again? Like, I don't need this anymore. I get it. Like, why am I here? <laughs> and I, I would, I would vocalize that. Um, eventually, you know, that, that I got through that. Um, it, I lived in very interesting neighborhoods when I was in New York city at that time, started off in Bay Ridge. We lived in, in, in very cramped spaces, Uh, my aunt at the time was ha was hosting my grandma, my grandfather, both of which are still alive in their 90s. Um, my 
baby cousin at the time, the older cousin, my mom and myself. So it was a lot of people. It was, it was a two bedroom apartment, a two bedroom apartment. And it it was all of us there. So at some point, uh, one of my aunties, right. One of Mm. my, my mom's friends, uh, who lived nearby opened up. She, she lived in a one bedroom apartment and it was just comfier. We, there was just space there for us to go sleep. Uh, she was single, so we ended up moving there. We would go between the both places. It was walking distance, right? So hmm. we had the fortune of having such opening, such such family that that received us with a lot of warmth and helped my mom navigate my well-being and also her trying to make ends meet, uh, working many jobs. You know, my mom went from being a professional, right, like a teacher. She was a, a school principal. She was well-known in Guayaquil in Ecuador um, to having to clean offices, having Mm. to go work packaging, um, working at different factories, doing different things, trying to figure out what was best so that she could have the resources to, to, you know, to feed me, to clothe me and to have my education be a priority. So Mm. my mom really did work really hard then. And in, in us navigating at some point, my grandparents moved out, obviously that apartment was very cramped. They ended up moving to East New York. I don't know if you know New York City. Mm. Um, East New York is, to this day, a uh, very rough neighborhood. Very, very rough neighborhood. And uh, for whatever reason, it's just stayed that way over the two decades that I've been there, more than two decades at this point, that I go back and forth. Uh, my grandparents still live in that apartment, so every time I go there, I go there. And I stick out like a sore thumb for sure. Um, uh, and, and very rough. So I ended up transferring to a school there first grade. And it it was for me a very scary experience because, um, several reasons. Number one, first grade in kindergarten was in this like trailer on the side of the school separated from the bigger kids. Um, so as soon as I, would go from into second grade, I would now be in the building with the bigger kids Mm. and the bigger kids just seemed scarier to me or seemed scary to me because they were big. They were big. And also I admit um, in Ecuador, in Ecuador, and this is still a problem and and families. And it's something that I've, I've worked away and chipped away in my life, but there's, there's definitely racism in our cultures. So the majority of the kids were black. And I think it was just almost like, being built into me that I should be afraid of the bigger black kids. No way. Um, so I was afraid of going to the bigger school uh, because they were scary because they were people I didn't know. Mm-hmm. Um, and during that time, then my brother, which has his own story, he, he's, he's 17 years older than I am. Um, he was now, I guess, uh, entering college at this point, And he lived an independent life from my mom at this point for very, for a variety of reasons, mm-hmm. him and his wife at the time, he married a Puerto Rican. They decide they're going to move to Puerto Rico. So he moves and we end up going to Puerto Rico as a vacation. Um, but it turns out that my mom, when we got there, we were only meant to stay there for the summer. My mom just dropped off her resume at several schools and they hired her. Um, my mom having nearly 30 years of experience, she's, she's well formed to be a teacher. And obviously they speak Spanish there as their, mm. their common language. Um, 
So it was a no brainer for my mom. She saw that as an opportunity for her to get back into what she loved to do and what she was passionate about and also a safe place for me to then continue my education in public school and figure and navigate that out in a culture that's more like ours. Um, so that we ended up staying there. I, I, I stayed in Puerto Rico for through middle school. Mm. Uh, I was shaped by the Puerto Rican culture. I was molded by the people and the warmth of Puerto Rico. I still go there all the time. I still have my chosen family, right? I, I, I go there and, and I visit and I hang out. I have places, couches to crash <laughs> by all intents and purposes. They became my family. This is, you know, I had a grandma, uh, she passed away a few years. Uh, sadly, I, I had to this day, I have my second mom, my Puerto Rican mom, uh, who owns story why I call her that. Um, but, but I had the, the, the opportunity of navigating that, uh, learning the culture, learning the history, getting educated in the public school system there in a town called Caguas, uh, which is right underneath San Juan. I don't know if you've had the chance to visit Puerto Rico. Nope. If not, you should. Someday. It's a good time. It's a good time. Um, and, uh, yeah, lived through there lived there low income. We didn't, we never had a car. Um, we didn't really have, I never had a computer up until very late in my middle school, like towards middle school, almost hand me down from a brother, from my brother. Um, but I think the constant theme through New York and Puerto Rico was just always being surrounded by people that were willing to help us. Mm. right for for nothing in return and 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 just that we always had people extending their hands helping us navigate the difficult situations even though i grew up low income right to me it was just first of all it was normal right i, I wasn't necessarily aware of what was missing mm. but as i started growing and started being exposed to different families and i did at some point get accepted into a private school with a scholarship um, that's its own little story. I, I got exposed to the middle class, right? And then, of <laughs> course, ever since my mom, since I was little, education was like, hey, like it was out of the question if I got anything lower than an A, right? Like it's oh just my like, God. like it, my mom was a teacher, right? So it, it wasn't even a question. It's like that—that's what you go for. Mm -hmm. um, and ever since I was young, like that was just the mo, right? That's how I operated. So my study habits were there. My mom was there to help me for, for things like Spanish. She was a Spanish teacher. Mm -hmm. um, but then eventually I just, you know, I was my own driver. I was just like, yeah, I just want to excel. Um, it was just in me that I had to do well. Um, and eventually I started learning. It's like, I have to do well because this is a means to getting a college education. Mm -hmm. And that college education is what's going to expand my access to resources and eventually my families as well. And I'll be able to support. Right. So it was a no brainer that I had to do well in school and uh, learn as much as I can in a way I learned, you know, I chose my family. I learned to network from very early on. Um, and, and that was my time in Puerto Rico, Puerto Rico, then in the mid two thousands started to get in its own shit show. Mm -hmm. um, the economy started to collapse in 2006 uh, we could talk about the, all the driving forces behind that historically and why that has happened. But around 2006 is when you start seeing this new wave of people leaving Puerto Rico. And my mom being a teacher in the public school system where she managed to get re-licensed, right? And that's another thing. Even though my mom was working, I saw my mom go to school. I saw my mom, I would go with her to university to get her credits so that she could get recertified 
here in the United States to teach in Puerto Rico specifically to teach. So education was just all over, right? I, uh, that's kind of what I was always seeing while we were in New York, she was taking classes to learn English and whatnot. So I would always go with her. Right? She couldn't just drop me off somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, education was a constant, it had a constant presence in my life as well as everything surrounding it. Um, and uh, Puerto Rico was going to shit. My brother was leaving. So we stayed in the house where they were. Um, a lot of things happened in between, but ultimately we ended up staying in their house. And um, my mom says, okay, you know what? I think it's going to be best if we move to New York, especially as you're transitioning into high school. Mm-hmm. That was a scary, scary proposition for me because now I'm way more conscious. I was what, third, 12, 13 at the time, mm-hmm. something like that. Yeah. I have friends. I have crush. I have a crush. <laughs> I have someone I'm in love with. I have my chosen family, the people I'm familiar with. Um, All that's about to come to an end. Mm. So that, but I also understood why, right? My mom had all the intent of making sure I was okay. Um, And that my path towards college was going to be protected. Um, Her job became uncertain because she's part of the public school system. And she saw what happened in Ecuador just a few years back where schools started getting cut. Mm-hmm. Teachers started just getting fired to, you know, accommodate for the massive debt the government is collecting. And that's exactly what happened in Puerto Rico. The school that I was in and also the school my mom was teaching at actually don't exist anymore. Um, so, so she had that foresight of preventing living through that chaos. Uh, very difficult time. I had in- have incredible friends because I stayed in touch with them. This was in the um, in the birth of social media, right? Like at, at this point, 2006 is when Facebook was just kicking off. MySpace was just, was was in its prime. Um, so we, you know, I, I, I social media did serve its purpose in my life, where I managed to truly stay connected with my different circles throughout my life because of it. Um, and still, still am with many of, of, of these people that have just shown up and, 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 and been part of my life. Mm-hmm. And I try to be as part of part of theirs as much as I can. Uh, so we ended up moving to New York, very difficult time, um, ha- in the middle of eighth grade too. So I couldn't even complete eighth grade. Ooh. It was just like, we need to leave. And it was like, oh shit. Okay, let's go. This has become way more popular in recent years. New York Times did a fantastic article and podcast on this on the daily a few years back. Today, actually, they released another episode on on high school education and and access to high school, specialized high schools, and the process of admittance into that, uh, which I invite listeners to go explore. Because unknowingly, what that means for us is that now we're leaving Puerto Rico. I'm leaving a really good school, one of the top private schools that if I would have stayed, I would have done very well. A lot of my friends um, end up going to top tier colleges. This is a feeder school to the MITs, the Harvards of the United States. It's like a really good school for that. Um, I'm leaving that behind, right? Unknowingly, we're flying into the systemic racist or the, the, the very racist system that is New York City public schools. Mm. Um, and I'm navigating that I'm flying into applying to the high school process when that process has already ended. By the time I show up in New York, um, the middle of eighth grade student, it's like applying to college by 
the previous fall, students had already applied to their top schools. That was no longer accessible to me because I'm late to the game. Yeah. Um, so I fly into the supplementary list, like the leftover schools. Literally, this is whatever school's leftover. Um, I'm like, well, I have no choice. We explore the idea of going to a private school in New York. We start going because it was a Catholic private school in New York. So we go reach out to the Catholic schools in the area. And New York has some insanely prestigious Catholic private schools. There's one in particular for, for all boys, Xavier, which was like, all right, going to an all boys school sounds terrible, but it is known for its academics and sports and blah, blah, blah. So it's, it's a good school in that sense. Let's go talk. I don't remember how much it was, but it was some absurd tens of thousands of dollars per year <laughs> out of the question. There was no opportunities for scholarships for me. Um, they were just not willing to budge in any kind of way, which, which like, all right, we get it. Uh, so public school system it is. In the, these few months that I'm in this uh, public school and middle school, Terrible. Obviously, the change of culture, very difficult to navigate, as it is for many of us, right? I'm going from Puerto Rico to New York. Yeah. How was your English uh, then? It, completely perfect. I think English okay. has been part of my lingo. I, I had learned it in so early on. And then in Puerto Rico, a lot of classes are taught in English, especially oh, okay. math and science. Um, and then watching TV, uh, playing video games, talking with my buddies, I, I was a big Yu-Gi-Oh player growing up. Um, and if you've played Yu-Gi-Oh, you know, that's not easy English to understand. Mm. Um, playing card games truly was, uh, uh, teaches you how to hustle, keeps you sharp in your English. Uh, I was a big Pokemon player too. So being an only child growing up, I think Pokemon was fantastic in the sense that like unknowingly, and I talk about this a lot, I was learning how to build teams right? I was learning how to build on each other's weaknesses. What does that mean? Dedicating time to specific objectives. And, and there's a lot of things that I think are taken for granted in, in video games, such as Pokemon that are very powerful, of course, uh, not in excess, but it, it, they do teach kids a lot. And, and if you, you realize that it's like, oh yeah, let's buy this kid, all the Pokemon games. That's, uh, it makes sense. Mm -hmm. uh, and I had the fortune over time. I had a lot of hand-me-down video games and, 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 and did that. But Yu-Gi-Oh! I played tournaments and I played for money. No so, way! Uh, I, I did play for money in, locally. And all that money I would make, I, it would go to buy a slice of pizza, but go back into cards. So mm. I, I, have my, a lot of, I have a lot of really highly valued cards. I'm keeping those forever. I have them protected. <laughs> um... And, and anyways, that was a way to keep that English up, basically, is what I'm trying mm. to say. So when I came to New York, it was, you know, no, not a problem. But culturally, very different, right? Puerto Rico, New York, very different. Very different cultures for many reasons. Um, I went from giving kisses on cheeks to now hugging people, which was really weird to me. Um, like, it's such an abstract concept to, to just hug everybody to, to say hello. Um, but... I guess for me, it was normal to kiss people on the cheeks. Like, that's just what you do. Mm -hmm. uh, but, but just navigating that, navigating, yeah, the language on a daily basis. Now, even something that's so common in Puerto Rico is when you walk into an, a, a restaurant or somewhere, people are eating, you know, you walk in and you say, buen provecho, which is, I guess, the equivalent of bon appetit or just enjoy. But everyone does that. 
here you do something like that to a stranger, they're going to look at you weird, right? Like it's, it's, it's these little things that are so normal, mm-hmm. learning how to navigate that and how to greet people and just how to communicate, learning how to do that was challenging. Um, and, and I, and always, I, you know, I had something that I was comfortable with. I missed it. Um, so navigating that now on top of navigating this school application process, I'm going to get back to that. I had a counselor who straight up told me, um, I I wish I could go to this guy's desk today. Um, my grades were too high, right? I'm coming in and he was a black dude. He was in, he was, he was Caribbean, but he was a black dude. Uh, he basically tells me your grades are too high. No one is going to believe that the immigrant kid, um, has these grades. So we're going to show in your applications. Uh, we're going to drive all these down to a B. What? And, I was like, and I was like, this is, I'm not okay with this. This is not what I have. Um, I'm going to see what I'm going to do about this. And I tell this to my mom and my mom, not know. I actually recently learned this full story. Uh, my mom, not knowing English, right? Speaking English, she's pissed. She's like, what the hell is this? This is garbage. Like, this is now who you are. And I'm like, I know. Um, the next day she gets my uncle who we're living with at the time. He, you know, my, my, my Theo Fernando opened his door to us when, when we came back to New York. Um, he goes with my mom to the school district and I don't know what she does. All I know is that she's there with him. He's translating. My mom is probably pissed off of mine. Um, my uncle's translating this and he's a soft spoken person. So like, I, I, I can only imagine how that went. Um, but all I know is that the next day I get called into this counselor's office and he shows me that he had fixed my grades. Um, and that was the end of that. But I can, but I always wonder like, what if I didn't have a mom that was so proactive? Right? Like how many other kids in the New York city system are getting pushed back by the people that are supposed to protect them? Mm-hmm. You know, um, if you don't have these engaged parents, there's so much loss of talent. Um, mm-hmm. that's definitely happening to this day. And I was fortunate enough that the school that got my attention in that list of supplementary schools. It's called new explorations into science, technology, and math to someone like me. It's like, wow, perfect. Great. Sounds cool. Let's go check it out. My mom goes with me. This is a school in the lower East side. Uh, it's called nest M that's the short for it. Um, we're nesties, uh, eventually Eagles is the, the team, the, the school teams, uh, we'll go there. I like it. It's very small. My graduating class was 120. Uh, the school is K through 12. Uh, so you have all the elementary, middle school, and high school students in the same building. Public school. Uh, that school ends up accepting me. I get, I take a test. I, they, I see that I fit in the math. Like I know my stuff. Like I'm, I'm primed for the school. Um, that school ends up becoming a specialized high school just a few years later. So specialized high schools in New York require students to take these very secretive uh, special admittance tests that only some people get prepared for. 
unless you get tapped or selected by whoever that may be in, in, in middle school, you may not hear about this. There are some middle schools that are way more proactive, but most schools in New York aren't preparing students for those examinations. And people simply don't know about it. Like I graduated Nest without knowing that this specialized test that I didn't have to take was even a thing, right? Like mm. I had no idea that was a thing. And that still happens to this day. And that affects disproportionately the schools uh, in low-income communities. Students have no idea that they need to thrive for these tests to be able to go to the top tier schools. So on top of the divisions that already exist in the middle schools, which is something I'll talk about in a moment, then they also have this barrier to entry into top tier education, which then obviously then is closing doors for many of them to even go to community college or even further than that to four-year institutions. So I always wonder, like, again, if I didn't have my mom be as proactive as she was, I would have been lost in the system. For sure. Right? And these are these are these are things that happen to this day, and it's something I'm very vocal about. Um, and when I go to the city, I, I try to talk to kids about this stuff. And that was another thing I was navigating to. Right when I got accepted into this middle school that I came into, um, that eighth grade, it was a tiered system. You had an Excelsior system, which is honestly the white kids. <laughs> then you had this middle group, which was split in into four classes you had the the eight one class which is the white kids then mm. you had five classes or six whatever it was it was six actually five five which was eight two through eight six the different classrooms and eight two is where you had like the white a sprinkle of asian kids mm -hmm. maybe some i don't even think there were i don't remember any hispanic kids i felt like i knew them um then you had maybe through eight, four and eight, six, some black kids, some Hispanic kids, but then eight, seven through like eight, 16 was literally all the black kids. <laughs> right. And, and this is common in New York. Right. And, and the school really tailors that, that their, their main resources to making sure those, that first class does well, forget the mm -hmm. other kids. They're yep. troublesome. They're they've been told they don't belong in this top tier class. So they don't deserve attention, right? So what does that tell these kids? Yeah, they're not going to thrive for, for much. They're, they're, they're being neglected by their school system. They're being neglected by their teachers. Hmm. A bunch of problems there. I was fortunate to be able to, to break through that and go to this school, but there's so many, so many kids that are being lost hmm. uh, through that, right? So I ended up going to Nest High School. Honestly, great experience. My friends, amazing students. I stuck with this a lot. This click to this day, um, we pushed each other. We we would bully each other if we get funny grades, right? Like we we did it in good in good faith. Mm -hmm. um, we had soccer. We never got a funded team, but our little scrappy team would do very well uh, for the most part. Uh, we would go play pickup soccer to train, uh, but we didn't have a formal training. Like <laughs> our scrappy team, we were just playing out in the streets up in Chinatown. It's like uh, bad just bears. Yeah, 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 yeah. We're a scrappy team playing in Chinatown, eating dumplings because they were a dollar. To this day, my boy, young at uh, Dragon Dumplings, shout out to him. Uh, <laughs> he's still around. He used to be called Prosperity Dumplings. He fed us. He had no idea, you know, a dollar for someone low income. Amazing. I could eat like 10 dumplings in a sitting. I can't do that anymore. It's like my stomach just won't hold it. Uh, they were amazing. 
uh, and we'd play soccer and, and, and we'd go back to school. I had the fortune of having incredible mentors and teachers got involved in a research program because one of the teachers was very, very involved with an NYU professor. So immediately it was like, they were preparing us to succeed. Right. So mm. I was very fortunate of that. End up getting accepted into a bunch of colleges for a bunch of reasons. Ended up at Michigan, did my undergrad there. True life-changing experience. Going to college, as many people know, opens up the doors to the world, Hmm. right? It's not just going after the degree. So when I hear that people say that, oh, the degree is useless. Going to college is not just about the degree. If you're doing it just for the degree, you're doing it wrong. Hmm. You go there obviously to get good grades because that's going to open up some some doors for grad school and jobs you go there to meet people to go open your views to the world go no, network no. yeah go do uh even study abroad travel abroad get internships right like college opens up truly your experience from what you used to think was normal now to what other people's normals may be hmm. um and i think that you know as much as people are saying degrees and schools are not going to exist or be needed in the future, I disagree. Um, nothing replaces being thrown in a brand new place to go learn, go learn from other people. Um, maybe there's other ways of doing that, but truly that's what you get out of college. Um, and, and this idea of graduating successfully is something that I'm very power, you know, very, very adamant about because not only did I graduate with a degree, but I also graduated with opportunities, right? It wasn't just like, oh, I'm done here. I'm going to go now struggle and apply to a bajillion jobs. No, <laughs> I had options, right? I, I navigated internships. I had incredible mentors that helped me through all of this. I struggled in school, but I had academics. I had, uh, I had tutors. I had people I can go supplement my main classes with. I had access to scholarships. I couldn't afford a suit. The College of Engineering helped me buy a suit for those first conferences when I was a freshman. Um, yeah, Michigan did a lot of really incredible stuff for me and, and was, you know, I had mentors and resources just thrown my way and navigating that. I, I, I wouldn't have been able to do it without the mentors that I had, um, a lot of which have become friends and, and, you know, I'm still, I still have relationships with them. Hmm. Uh, but Michigan opened up the doors into aerospace for me. I, I did internships, GE Aviation at Boeing. Uh, at SpaceX, at JPL, and ultimately... So you worked for SpaceX? I did. I did. I, mm -hmm. I had a stint there in 2014, I think. Um, yeah, 2014. So I worked on the Dragon capsule for, for a few months uh, and, and then worked at Boeing as well immediately after. So I've, I've had a very like a, a broad set of experiences. Um, and then that opened up my opportunity to go get a master's in space engineering, uh, space systems design, uh, and then I'm, I've been at JPL for the last six years doing incredible work with the Mars 2020 mission with the Rover from testing hardware to designing, uh, some, some hardware needed to support these tests, architecting, architecting, how we're going to operate the Rover, uh, mm. tools necessary because now I'm doing operations and now I'm leading a team of people that, Our, our systems engineers developing new capabilities for the rover, ultimately trying to answer whether or not we're alone in the universe. So mm. that's my story in summary. I love it. I love it. <laughs> There's a lot of in between, you know? No, I love it. Um, Bob, for the listeners, explain to them what rover are you talking about, just in case they don't know. 
Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. So the rover that is currently on Mars, the Mars Perseverance rover, part of the Mars 2020 mission, is is another step that we've been building over many decades. We've NASA has been on Mars since the 1970s through a series of landers and rovers. Our first rover was the size of a microwave, Rover Sojourner, got sent there in the late 90s. Then we had the Mars Exploration rovers. Um, that first one was to first of all test: Can we even use a rover on Mars? Then we built the Mars Exploration Rover, Spirit and Opportunity, which many people may be familiar with. Smaller, about golf-sized carts. Um, we're trying to see with that, was there water on Mars? They helped us confirm that there was water on Mars. Hmm. Then we sent MSL, the Mars Science Laboratory. Massive rover, right? The size of a van. Okay, were there ingredients on Mars that could have become life? Yeah. The rover helped us confirm that there was organic material on the surface of Mars. All right. So now that all being said, we had ingredients. We had the environment at some point in the history of Mars. Was there ever life on Mars? And that is what, where Perseverance steps in. We're trying to understand if there's any evidence of um, ancient biology that could have existed. Now, we're not going to find green people. Okay. That's Mars never had an environment to support <laughs> complex life like us, mm. but all the theory and all the studies suggest that maybe microorganisms could have developed on Mars at mm. some point in the history. So you can see that by studying rocks, right. By studying the geology, by seeing what's left over, if life ever existed, what kind of organic material remains. So we have some instruments that are helping us see that and well, we're, we're, we're basically trying to see, all right, this right here that we're looking at is a really good candidate for something we would want to study more closely to determine if life existed on Mars or if it exists today. Mm. Let's package it up. Let's seal it in a tube and let's wait because in the next few years, we're going to send a follow-up mission that's going to go pick up those samples and bring them back to earth so that we can more conclusively study those samples and say, yeah, this right here, this points to, 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 to life having once existed on Mars or existing today. So mm -hmm. that's where Perseverance stands. And, and we're very excited for everything that we've been accomplishing so far. That's amazing. Who controls the rover? We do on the ground um, on the daily basis. We assess the data. I'm part of the team that assesses the data. Um, then we have a team that takes that data and plans the next day's activities. So we have this cycle where we assess, we feed forward, plans get made, and then those plans get executed. And the objectives are, are, are different depending where we are in the local area of the rover called Jezero Crater. And to give people context of that, Jezero Crater, think of it kind of like the Mississippi Delta. If you, if you take a satellite image of what the Mississippi Delta is towards the Gulf, where it's this massive river that just opens up to the coast. Mm. That's where we are. We're in an area very similar to that on Mars, where we once believed there was a lake. All the evidence indicates that there's a lake. And if you look at satellite images, it's like, oh yeah, this is obvious. Like there's clearly a massive body of water, water here. You can see it in the rock shapes and water flowed through here. And this Delta is where a lot of material could have deposited over many billions of years that could right now be holding evidence of life that once lived there um, or that lives there today, right? Like we, we don't truly know that. 
um, so that's where we are, and that and we plan that area, navigating that area accordingly. And mm-hmm. we have our helicopter helicopter buddy. This is I love this right? thing. I didn't even know about this. Yeah. So the Mars helicopter, first of its kind, first time we fly an air vehicle outside of Earth. We got to do that. I personally was, you know, I, I got to program uh, the day it woke up for its first flight. I was part of that team doing operations early on. Um, so it's been it's been a fantastic experience to be able to contribute to the mission and potentially right to this this question of whether or not we're alone in the universe. Well, I saw that there was like a door that they saw in Mars. What what's your opinion about this door? I mean, it's not a door. Keep in mind. <laughs> That picture is a very zoomed-in picture of a tiny little door, and I think they, they 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 probably many people have released like what the scale of that image is. That was an image taken by the Curiosity rover, yeah. previous rover to Perseverance, and it's just like a feature on a rock. And who knows? Maybe one day a rock fell there and it broke a rock so perfectly. <laughs> um, but it's like tiny. It's not a door. It's like this tiny little thing that looks like a door. Um, and the scale, unless you have like a banana for scale, like obviously you're going to be confused, but it's just yeah. like a little hole in a rock that broke one. Who knows? I you know? couldn't wait to ask that question to you. <laughs> I knew how you're going to react with this. Yeah. It's not a door. It's not a door, man. Not a door. <laughs> That's amazing. So you said you landed in the Delta. Yeah. I'm sure it's a team, right? But what made you guys decide that that's where we're going to go? Yeah, great, great question. It was a study done by science teams across several years. There were several sites across Mars that seemed interesting, right? We have our orbiters on Mars that have mapped out like big picture, macro scale, like hmm. what kind of materials are where on Mars? What's the environment on Mars? We have a good idea, but we want to now closely interact with those materials. So several sites were selected and then over a few years prior to the launch of the mission in July of 2020, um, the scientists finally said, you know what? Jezero Crater is compelling because such and such. We believe this is where we have the highest chance to find evidence of astrobiology. Um, let's go there. Hmm. But that was a series of multiple years of, of, of discussions, conferences, and scientists from all over the world getting together and deciding that. That's crazy, man. Yeah. What happens if, God forbid, this rover gets stuck? What do you guys do? We'll, we'll cross that bridge when we cross it, man. <laughs> well, no, I, you have to have a plan. I mean, it depends. I think it depends. But uh, very unlikely, we've learned to, to navigate across the surface of Mars. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have had the experience with Spirit, the Spirit rover. It got stuck on sand. Um, so we, we couldn't move it anymore. So it just kind of becomes a, a lander at that point. Mm. Um, you're just stuck. You can't move it elsewhere. That's it. Mm-hmm. It is what it is. Uh, the, 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 this rover, very unlikely that would happen. We're also very careful about where we drive. You won't just see us driving into a dune of sand. We won't just do that. We have really just good ramps. Na- Right. We have mapping capabilities. Um, we have the rover has autonomous capabilities to know whether to whether or not to drive under certain conditions. Mm. Um, so very unlikely situation is what I will say. Awesome. But seriously, in the case it happens, TBD, where we are in the mission, right? Mm. Um, because right now we're in the process of collecting samples 
Soon, later in the year, we're going to decide where exactly we're going to drop it off that that will become public. And then the next mission will be sent there to pick up those samples. But nice. um, depending, right, if something goes terribly wrong before that, we'll have well, to decide as problems arise. Not. Right. We hope yeah, not. hope not. Okay. What would you say to people that you guys are wasting money in space? Why don't you solve world problems? Yeah, uh, the, 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 the answer to that is actually, uh, there, there's mul multiple answers to that. I will say, for, for those that are very data-driven, okay, there's a whole report that was released, I think, in late 2019 that uh, under the Trump administration, there was a study conducted of how much money goes back into the economy from any for all the dollars invested into NASA. And I forget the exact numbers, but it's a significant amount of money. NASA, for all intents and purposes, is one of the best return for investments um, within the federal government, hmm. just in terms of how much technology gets developed and then gets released and taken by commercial entities. Um, how much money just flows from our salaries outside into the economy. Um, NASA, which also, by the way, operates on a relatively very small budget compared <laughs> to many other agencies, still manages to be one of the highest return of investments in terms of how much money gets put back into the economy. Now, that being said, in recent months, actually, there's another report that was put out of how many technologies get developed because we're doing such, we're confronted by such difficult technical challenges, things from solar panel efficiencies, from new materials that get implemented across different applications, medical applications, uh, and keeping astronauts alive in the ISS, um, there's so much technological output Again, from the very small budget that NASA has in the overall um, federal government's budget, right? I think to the people that hate on NASA, I, you know, as a personal civilian, as my own person, I would say go complain about the military industrial complex. Don't complain about NASA. Mm -hmm. um, everything we do is public. Everything we're doing is, is for the good of, of the world. You can argue otherwise elsewhere. Uh, but everything we do is for, for, all, for science, right? For the advancement of humanity. And there's truly no argument against that. Um, that is what NASA does. Um, and, and, and likewise, we're, we're trying to you know, continue inspiring people to look up. I think NASA is also very much contributing in the studies, right? Of, of how do we monitor the climates? How do we make sure we protect the earth? Because I think that one of the really good things about these careers we have that force us to look up is to understand how special Earth is mm. and how, how we truly need to take care of what we have. I think that's a very privileged position because I get to directly interact with the, with the, with the data coming from other planets and realize like, wow, this is truly the planet that's meant for me as a human being. I mm. need to really take care of what I have take care of the people I love and take care of all those around me that, that, you know, that, 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 to live in harmony. I think that's very important. Mm. Um, when you look up, it makes you realize how a lot of the conflicts we have on earth are so insignificant. Mm -hmm. A lot of the troubles people create, you know, the humanity currently battling. Um, 
we really need to put our many differences aside because we are very special. And at the same time, we're very fragile. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyways, it's, it's a privileged position to be, but keep in mind again, your dollar, especially for taxpayers, uh, is being put to good use from the NASA perspective. Mm-hmm. For sure. All right. Talking about Earth. Do you think it's more viable for humans to move to a Goldilocks planet or just inhabit Mars by setting up a colony there? Um, I believe it or not, I, I realize the value of potentially having a second planet, but I, I'm more aligned uh, with the idea that we should create space stations that have controlled environments and have artificial gravity by having centrifugal forces than ending up colonizing other planets. We truly don't know what that means. Hmm. Um, But places like Mars are not hospitable to humans for many reasons. We truly also don't understand what that means in the long term. Um, I'm the believer that Maybe Mars is going to be a good science output. Maybe Mars will be a great candidate for heavy industry. Hmm. Uh, we want global warming to be existing there. We want to truly make that planet warm. So go have heavy industry on a planet that is inviting for that, right? Uh, keep soft industry here on Earth. Keep Earth truly being our habitable planet where hmm. we truly live and experience our day-to-day Other planets should serve to our benefit um, in some way or form. And that's where robotic exploration comes into play, right? Mm. Robots robots can do a lot for us. Humans are very fragile. They're fleshy. Humans are also very dumb at the end of the day. (laughs) Um, Robots truly can expand our frontiers. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, I think we should just really focus on, on humans being able to explore space in a safely manner. But in terms of habitation, let's never abandon Earth. I think that is my my personal statement for now. So maybe one day you'll see me on the moon, personally. I don't know if I'd be as brave enough to go to another planet like Mars. Mm. Traveling through space is, is scary for many reasons. <laughs> hey, listen, I don't even like going on a plane. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Imagine traveling in a little can. You're like this, and it's like Six. flying... <laughs> Seven months without certainty that you would return home, mm-hmm. right? If you decide to travel to some place like Mars, it, it is a difficult thing. Um, we'll, we'll navigate it over the next few years where we have a lot to go. I think within our lifetime, we are going to see people touch Mars. Uh, mm. that, that it will happen. Uh, in terms of colonization, it's going to be a long time if we even get there. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know how valuable that may be. But I truly believe that a place like Mars will end up serving as a heavy industry planet where mm. all the dirty stuff we currently do here will go and manufacture over there and have a pipeline and logistics infrastructure to help support life here on Earth. I think that's truly where, where Mars will shine. Mm. You mentioned traveling to the moon. Do you ever think of being an astronaut? Absolutely. I think yeah. going to somewhere like the moon would be just uh, an incredible experience. Uh, the moon serves as many things for a space and inf- for space infrastructure. Uh, it will definitely make traveling to other planets a lot cheaper. If we have a sustainable uh, moon base where we can launch rocket from rockets from, 
Hmm. Keep in mind, um, gravity is no joke. Gravity is 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 a truly uh, truly constraining uh, effect of nature, and uh, having the moon as a as a as a base to explore other places for humans is going to help us truly establish a presence in space. So going there and being part of that initial moon base and the infrastructure development that's going to happen there over the next few years, I think would be really fun. Um, incredible. It would be a privilege to be part of that team in upcoming years. So I, I wouldn't put it besides me to get on a rocket, to go to the moon. I'd love awesome. to. I read the book of Chris Hadfield, the Canadian oh, astronaut. Yeah. yeah. And I was reading it and he's like, oh, you're not allowed to be sick for like 10 years, not even a cold. I'm like, what? How is that possible? Yeah. Again, humans are fleshy and dumb, right? <laughs> so yeah, it, it, these are very difficult challenges that we may take for granted. Uh, mm. Humans are very human and we would get sick and we would have to learn how to navigate all of that on other planets where resources are very constrained. Um, so you're absolutely right. Like all these things are being, where people are attempting to account for uh, hmm. as we're developing the Artemis mission, the upcoming Artemis mission and, and, and everything to explore and establish a presence on the moon. So um, lots of work to go. And we're going to see a lot of it in the next few years, I think. I'm excited. What's the Artemis mission? The Artemis mission is the United States program to put people back on the moon. Uh, it's it's into where Artemis is the sister of Apollo uh, so it is also the mission that will put the first woman on the moon and the first people of color on the moon. That's awesome. I saw that the Latina woman that went to space. Was she on the SpaceX? I don't I don't remember. You posted it. Oh, you're you're probably talking about Katya. Katya yeah. went to uh, she, she took a suborbital flight with Blue Origin. Uh, so she got to experience the overview effect that many astronauts talk about and, and, and being able to, to witness the earth from that altitude. I think it's awesome. Mm. Uh, she is technically the first, I think, uh, Mexican born woman to go to space. Um, and, and, you know, she, she is yet another pioneer within the community because there hasn't been many of us that have been to space, right? We, we, we've had Elena Ochoa was the first Hispanic to go to space. So she's, now a lab director uh, down at Johnson Space Center. Elena Choi is, in, is incredible, incredible um, person I look up to. She's still very active in, in the space community, obviously, and doing outreach and doing all kinds of stuff. We've had other astronauts as well. Um, I'm forgetting his first name, but Hernandez, uh, who's now also having his own farm, making wine. Uh, he's fantastic. And he was an astronaut, one of, one of the first astronauts. He's from L.A., um, from SoCal. So yeah, there's, there's been, then there's a few Puerto Ricans as well. There's two, I think, uh, at this point. And, uh, it, it's great to see that representation because then, uh, they, they know it, that they, that what they do and their successes is going to inspire a lot of people like myself and others that continue coming after us. Right. So, um, maybe I won't be the first Hispanic in space, but I surely won't be the last. And I think that's, that's what I'm hoping to, 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 to accomplish here. Hmm. You'll be the coolest. Maybe. Maybe <laughs> that I can thrive for. <laughs> of course, your job is so stressful and, you know, anxiety-ridden. How yeah. do you handle stress? It's very difficult, man. Um, that, that doesn't ever stop being uh, the truth. I think navigating stress is very important and taking care of your mental health is absolutely critical for everybody. Hmm. Um there, there are times where you, I, I was burned out 
um, maybe I'm coming out of that uh, very recently, but all the work that it took for many of us to, to get to Mars was insane. And at some point, you may have heard of people, you know, people work their differences between Eastern time zone and Pacific time zone, right? Like you hear about that all the time. Well, now try going from Pacific standard time to local Mars time, right? <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a very different paradigm. And, and Mars uh, is about 24 hours and 40 minutes, I think, for its days, every soul on Mars. And here, obviously, we have 24 hours. So every day we operate on Mars, you stack those 40 minutes and you have to figure out how to navigate that. Oh, and shoot. there was a, a period of time where we were working on Mars time, where every day we needed to command the vehicle um, at 9 a.m. Or we needed to make sure that commands got to the vehicle by 9 a.m. local Mars time. So we were operating in that stacking ladder paradigm. So one day, you know, two weeks ago, I may have started at 8 a.m., but two weeks later, now I'm starting at like 11 p.m. And your Whoa. days stacked like that. Uh, so that was very difficult. And then on top of all the stress of making sure everything in, you know, works correctly, that we are testing everything on the ground before it gets executed on Mars, um, that takes its toll. That takes mm -hmm. its toll. We are a very lean team. Uh, so I, I was very tired for a long time. Um, still coming out of that, to be honest, it's a very difficult job. You're absolutely right. And a lot of people sacrifice a lot to make these kind of missions happen. Um, I think we don't necessarily talk about that so much and it gets lost in the glory of the mission. Mm. Obviously, yes, we've accomplished a lot at the expense of a lot of people. Um, and I think it's a learning lesson for many of us that are in leadership and moving forward to and designing other missions mm. that we can't take for granted the human element of operating such vehicles and incorporating in the design of, and especially in the concept of operations, what we call conops time for people to be people <laughs> um, and, and to, to make sure people don't tire out. I think that's really important. It's something that we've been learning uh, that I hope gets implemented in missions in the future. Hmm. And this is why working in space is so different. I think um, and very difficult. We need to account for these things, especially if we have Earth-based operations. How do we make sure we don't burn our teams out, right? I think it's a difficult question to answer um, because we don't have infinite resources either. So sometimes you have to sacrifice to, to, to get the mission to succeed, but um, it is tiresome. And, and you know, got to navigate it by the individual. Uh, I personally love kickboxing. So if mm. I'm angry, I'm going to go punch a bag. I'm going to go kick a bag. Uh, it's going to be great. Um, I dance a lot too. I love doing my salsa, my bachata, my merengue, my Latin dancing is a blast. Recently, I've picked up photography. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I really make sure not to take for granted the time with my loved ones. Um, I now have a puppy. So, I mean, for those of us, where'd he go? He's probably outside <laughs> playing. Um, he just got his first haircut today. So uh. he looks really cute. Um, so, you know, keeping, keeping myself grounded, spending time with my girlfriend, who's very supportive. Um, and, and, you know, keeping in touch with family, going to see them when I can, uh, which is hard during COVID, but mm. make, made it happen here and there. Uh, and now, you know, whenever I can go spend time with my grandparents, like I mentioned, they're in their nineties. Right. So, you know, spend the time as much as possible. Um, anyways. Yeah. Take care of your mental health. It's important. Exactly. Exactly. Listen, I could talk to you for days and have thousands of questions, but I'll just send a DM to you. But I think we're getting there. But before we close out, I just have one question, if you don't mind. 
What advice would you have for aspiring people that wants to work for NASA or for engineering? Yeah, uh, I'm going to answer that question in the context of the United States. All right. To be very clear, that means if you are a U.S. person and, and then I'll, I'll have my, my, my answer for the non-U.S. people. Mm-hmm. So for U.S. persons, number one, I think surround yourself by people that challenge you and uh, you can share your ambitions with and push each other to whatever your limits might be. It's really important and in, in coming up with vision together and extending a hand where possible, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not only about seeing yourself rise, but how can you bring others with you? I think that's very powerful. Um, and there, there, is, there is a truth to working hard, uh, but also realize that you don't need to do it alone. Mm-hmm. Work hard and ask for help when you need it. Um, that'll get you very far because you'll also learn through that and hopefully teach others. Mm-hmm. Um, I think th- th- those are the main things. Also, if you're trying to work for NASA, you don't only have to be engineers and scientists. I'd love for everybody to be an engineer and a scientist, but I realize that other people have other passions, right? We, we have business folks, we have communications folks, we have teachers, we have people that do HR, we have all kinds of efforts for media development and, and art. So if it is NASA you're trying to come and join, there's many ways to do it. Um, not only just engineers and scientists, right? So be mindful of that. Mm-hmm. Um, but for those who are non-US persons uh, that are maybe listening in from other, other countries and they want to get involved in space industry, if you want to come to the United States and work in the United States, frankly, the easiest route to that is going to be for you to get a PhD in a technical field. And you have to specialize in something that really gives a compelling argument as to why you, you should get hired over a US person. Mm. Go after a PhD. And now other programs, I think, the incredible thing of the commercial industry that's being now developed in space is that it has enabled lower cost and access to space. So many countries are now developing their own space programs through CubeSats, through satellites. There is a way for people to now bring those technologies to their respective countries. And that leads to more industry, that leads to economic outputs, to people getting educated. So I do empower folks if they can, if they have the resources in their countries, establish your space industries or get involved in the many that are growing across all the different continents. Um, It's a very exciting time for space. It's only gonna keep getting more exciting. Um, We see more players every year. We see more schools, companies all across the world getting involved. Um, And I think it's gonna push us to be more collaborative across countries, which is always a good thing for humanity. So um, space is a great place to be. Mm, Wise word from a wise man. Listen, Elio, I really appreciate your time and coming on the podcast. And before we close out, I have to say, in behalf of all the humanity, thank you. And thank you for all the work that you do to save our dumb asses. (laughs) We're trying our best. We're trying our best. Um, No, but seriously, thank you for, for sharing these stories. Um, I think it's, it's, it's really important for, for others to listen in, especially for other people, you know, that, that are trying to emulate whatever roles we, we may have now. Uh, we have navigated our, our own individual stories, and hopefully we can teach other people from that. That note, I think this is the first podcast I'll say this publicly. Um, I'm, I'm releasing a book about mm-hmm. my story and all the intricacies of what my story is. Everything that I summarized earlier, there's a lot that happened in between. 
I'm, I, I had the privilege uh, of working on my memoir for, for my, what it has been my upbringing. I have plenty to still do, but I do want to make sure the story gets out there. Uh, but my publisher with, uh, through Harper Collins, we're going to be releasing the book early 2023. So be on the lookout for that, both in English and Spanish. Uh, the Boy Who Reached for the Stars. Um, I'm really excited about that project. It's been a fantastic learning experience and I'll, I'll be doing a tour and all that. So keep up to date uh, in my social media and, and you'll hear more from me through about that through there. Awesome, man. I'm excited. Can't wait to read. Yeah, there's a lot of fun anecdotes there and I think a lot of really good things that people can learn about. So I'm, I'm really excited to share that with everyone. Awesome. Again, thank you for coming on again, Elio. Thank you so much for having me, man. I'm here. If you ever need anything, we want to talk about space again, let me know. For sure. <laughs> Have a good day. Bye. Have a good one, man. Thanks so much. Thank you. Again, Elio, thank you for coming on the podcast. I really do appreciate it. Thank you, listeners, for listening. This is Aaron Deliosa for An Immigrant's Life. I'll see you guys later. <laughs>